Ephesians 1. We'll be looking a little more closely at this famous passage and what it might mean for us. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, show us what this means for us, that we may say not merely as a prayer or as a longing, but as a statement of the reality of who we are. For us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Work this in us, we pray for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. So what does this even mean? To live is Christ. We talk about it in different ways. Jesus Christ, our all in all. Jesus, our everything. But what does that really even mean? How do you live that out? Like, I'm a a concrete thinker. What does that look like for Jesus to be your all in all? Or is it just rhetoric? Like, When we say, oh man, I love pizza so much, I can't imagine a world without pizza. And there's something to be said for that. In one hand, you can hold all the major food groups. We could really live without pizza. Some of us might live a little longer without pizza. Is that how it is when we say, I love Jesus? I I just can't imagine life without Jesus or the church. Jesus is my all in all. Is it just something we say that's rhetorical? Or is it something real? To talk of something being our all in all is to speak to what matters most. What actually, truly, really shapes us in the very core of our being. 
Now, when we say something is our all in all, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. For something to be our all in all is for something to shape us at a most fundamental level. What is it that shapes you? And before you say it's Jesus, just pause and think about all the things that influence how you live. Like these little magical devices that we pull out in the shopping line or that we navigate in our cars with or that in moments of silence we pull out because we can't bear to be confronted with ourselves that beep at us and and call our attention to the latest TikTok or text or whatever it is and and how much of our daily routine revolves around running back into the house to get it because we left it or searching around where it is that we put it last is it in my coat pocket or where like just how much are we shaped by things like that when we say we're not what would it then look like for us to really be shaped at the most fundamental level by Jesus so that when we say he's our all in all it's not wishful thinking but a statement of truth what does it mean for Jesus to be our everything It means a lot of things, but in this passage, it means at least three. For Jesus to shape us, it means that he shapes our response to all our circumstances. It means that he shapes our most fundamental desires. And it means that he shapes our very purpose in life. And so we're going to take a look at those things this morning. The first thing I want us to see that if Jesus is our all in all, he shapes our response to circumstances. And I tell you that this is not the norm. Ordinarily, our circumstances shape us and we react to them constantly. Things happen Life goes sideways. We get a a diagnosis that we weren't expecting. Treatment isn't going the way we planned. Uh, There's something that happened at work that just makes it untenable that we can even stay. All sorts of things happen and it causes in us confusion or anger or weariness or depression or anxiety. And we react and lash out. Or hope that just with some wishful thinking that maybe it will all work out in our marriage or with our kids or in our job or whatever. But Paul, who is in prison, facing trial and possible execution, does not react to his circumstances with fear or anxiety or anger. He responds to them with joy. Yes, he tells us, and I will rejoice. How? This is not 
Him putting on airs. This is the the response of the overflow of his heart because there is something about him that has been changed and shaped by Jesus. It's like having three arms. Sometimes you moms have wondered what it would be like to have a couple extra sets of hands. Maybe some science fiction writers have thought through this a little bit more. But I can promise you, if you had three arms, everything about your life would be different. I mean, from the clothes you buy, to the hobbies you have, to the way you talk to people, to the way you sleep. Everything's different because of your being, your nature, who you are. And so Paul here is responding differently because he has been shaped to be different by Jesus. How so? He tells us. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And you have to understand that he's not here talking about deliverance from suffering. He's not saying that I know that when I stand before the judge at my trial, that they are going to exonerate me and I will be set free. He doesn't know. He, he admits that whether in life or in death, he hopes that Jesus is glorified in his body. He does not know that he will be delivered from execution. He's not talking about being delivered from suffering. He knows That because of what God is doing, has done, and will do in him, that he will be delivered to his Lord and Savior, Jesus, no matter what may come. And so he doesn't have to crumble under the weight of possible execution. He doesn't have to cower in the darkness and isolation of a prison cell. He knows that no matter what may come, God will work these things for his deliverance. The Lord will bring him near to himself. And when he does, Paul says, I will not at all be ashamed. Imagine if you were locked away in a jail cell. Alone with your thoughts and guilt and regret. What if I had done something differently? What if I hadn't approached it this way? Oh, I may never get a chance to undo this thing that I've done. Like in those moments of stillness and silence... that are so rare these days, that we flee from at every opportunity. But if you were to step into them, what would flood your heart? Guilt? Shame? Paul says, in the stillness and darkness and isolation of his cell, that Christ has so worked in him that it is his eager expectation to stand before God. He can't wait. 
It's his hope, his certain hope that when that day comes, that he will not at all be ashamed. He is not weighed down or troubled or crushed under the weight of the things that he has done. And he has done wicked things. He calls himself the chief of sinners and not without cause. He knows that he will not be ashamed because Christ is honored in him. Christ is his all in all. And when he stands before the Lord of the universe, it will not be to give an account of his merit and his righteousness, for he has nothing to plead. It will be an opportunity for him to stand yet again in Christ and plead Jesus his Savior, his Redeemer, his King. And he knows that when he does, he will not be ashamed because Christ bore in his body already the guilt and the wickedness and the sin and the shame of his people so that they never have to bear it again. God is at work in his people shaping them and conforming them to the likeness and image of Christ. And whether they live or they die, God is at work. This is Paul's confidence. And the reason he can respond to his circumstances with joy. A joy that is rooted and shaped by Christ. Is this true of you? Are you shaped by Christ or are you shaped by your circumstances? When things get tough, do you react? Clinging to coping mechanisms to numb you from the pain or the shame or the guilt. That when your relationships with those close to you are falling apart, you flee to whatever it is that makes you feel better, if even for a moment. To alcohol, pornography. Do you isolate yourself and let the fear and anxiety and just run in circles in your head building up steam until you can't even stand it? Do you lash out in anger? What would it look like for you not to be shaped by your circumstances so that you react to them whenever they change? but to respond in all things in this life because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. This is why the Philippians pray. And this is why Paul clings to their prayers. I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ... In this moment, he is not relying on the power of positive thinking or on just the good things that he's done, hopefully outweighing the bad things that he's done. He is leaning wholly and completely on the power of God at work in him through the prayers of his people 
and the power of the Spirit of God to mold him and shape him more and more in the likeness of Christ, what would it look like for you to be shaped in him like that? And if that scares you or concerns you, I mean, challenge yourself with this question. Do you really want to be delivered to your God? Is it your eager expectation to stand before him, your heavenly father, because of what Jesus has done for you? Or have you bought the lie of the great deceiver that your shame is too big, your guilt is too heavy, Paul responds because Jesus has shaped him deeply and it changes the way he lives. In fact, it doesn't just change his response to circumstances. When Jesus is our all in all, he shapes even our most fundamental desires. And this is significant. I, I was wondering recently, is anything amazing anymore? Do you, do you feel that maybe it's just me, but it seems like everything in life is geared to trigger just one more dopamine reaction in our brains, right? And, and it's like this law of diminishing returns, like one more video, viral video, but I need one more and one more and one more. And, and all it really does is just numb us. It doesn't change us. This is, this is what porn does. It's always demanding more of you so that you dive deeper and deeper to get the same reaction. This is what the algorithm does. Let's show you more news that's going to get you all riled up and angry because it feels good. It releases something in you. But it leaves us unamazed by just about everything. Which is why we're always seeking something more. Why we're never really content. Why we complain and grumble so much. I had to study art, not as like an art history major, just they had a class in high school. I had to study art. You probably, everybody probably has something like this, you know, and you get to see this is the Mona Lisa and this is Michelangelo's David and this is this and this is that. And, and some of these paintings in, in the books, like Salvador Dali, I just don't get it. But then I got to go to the Smithsonian National Museum of Art on some field trip somewhere sometime. I don't even remember where it was or when it was or who I was with, but I remember my reaction to a Salvador Dali painting of all things that filled a whole wall. And I just stood in awe, like whatever caricature of it that I had seen before in a little postage stamp sized picture in a textbook changed the moment I saw it for real. 
don't have to be a fan of his philosophy to be awed at his skill. And then to see that sculpture and that thing, these things that I always pictured in my mind as being the stuff that you could hang on the wall, seeing that the, the paint just is, is glopped up in mountains and, and the, the dots on those little... Uh, I didn't study really hard. I can't remember the school of art that that's called. But you know what I'm talking about. The painting's huge. How long did that take? And I would have messed it up six ways to Sunday. But to see the real thing, to stand in awe. Paul here, his writing is so disjointed and, and grammatically awkward and weird. And it reveals that he is utterly and completely overwhelmed in amazement and awe at Jesus. For me, to live is Christ. I want to live like him. I want to follow wherever he goes. I want to be like him. I want wherever he is, that's where I want to be. Life is Christ. And to die is gain. Not because I escape suffering. Death is not an escape for Paul. It is a doorway to be with Jesus face to face. Jesus is that glorious, is that wonderful, that even death is a blessing for him. Nothing is more glorious. Nothing is more desirable. Nothing is more beautiful than Jesus. The Lord of glory. And friends, If the beauty of Christ does not amaze you, if it is not shaping your most fundamental desire, maybe you should pause and ask yourself, what are you missing? We live in a world that has shaped everything we do. The the liturgies and rituals of our culture dictate so much that we haven't even given thought to. It's just normal. And yet, some people have opportunities that other people don't. Some people get talked over when other people don't. Like, all these little things happen, and it's just normal to us. It's shaped us, these liturgies of our culture. And if you don't find Christ beautiful, could it be that it's because he doesn't actually play a meaningful part of your life? We lock our eyes on the news and on the politics. And you cannot watch a YouTube video without hearing about the governor's race in Virginia 20 times. But we don't make time to be still and know that he is God. 
We make time to run out to the store and get all the things that we need and stock up on whatever's in scarce these days and whatever the supply chain might be constraining, whether it's our fault or not. Toilet paper, whatever's next, I don't know. Buy stock in it. But we don't stock up on Scripture. Letting it seep down into our heart and soul so that we would know who our God is and how beautiful He is and what He's done for us. We run around in our cars dropping everybody off for every event that could possibly be held for any age group whatsoever. And in our rushing here and there and to and fro, we don't take time to talk with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends about what is going on in their heart and what Jesus is and what he might be doing and how he might be a help to them. We don't make space to invite people into our homes. We are shaped by a lot of things. And if Christ is not so utterly amazing to you, so that you could say, for me to live is Christ, to die would be gain, perhaps, perhaps, maybe, it's because you haven't made any space for him in your life at all. Christ doesn't just want to shape us in, so that we respond to all our circumstances better and that we can sing with our whole hearts that he is beautiful. When Jesus is our all in all, he shapes our very purpose in life. The reason we're even here. We live in a culture that has taught us to always ask, what's in it for me? Sometimes that's maybe a good question, but it's not a rule to live by. But that's how we do. Will this show bring me joy? What am I getting out of church? Is this job giving me fulfillment? Is this marriage satisfying all of my needs? What's in it for me? It's an exhausting way to live if you think about it. I used to play with Legos. Okay. If you're in my office, you know that I still play with Legos. But I used to have time to build whole worlds, like space outposts, cities, whatever. And I would dictate everything. I mean, the Lego men didn't decide who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. I decided. They didn't decide the design of the ships. I decided the design of the ships. They didn't decide who won the battle or what the strategies or taxes would be. I did. I controlled every little thing. And then I'm... I've exhausted all of my ideas in like 20 minutes because the fun of playing with Legos wasn't just creating the worlds for me. It was playing with my siblings, with my friends, 
together. If to die is gain, why would God leave us here? Paul tells us, in no small part, he leaves us here for others' sake. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He recognizes that the Lord may yet use him to encourage the Philippians in their progress and joy in the faith. That God may answer their prayers by sending him back to them to help them grow even more. What would it look like for us to live not thinking all the time what's in it for me? But, oh Lord, where would you have me serve? And what would it be like to see him use us? To bring progress and joy to others in their walk with Jesus. Do you have ample reason to rejoice because of what God is doing through you in the lives of others? Here in the church with our neighbors, with the opportunities that God presents us with to share the very love of Christ in word and deed? Is your problem and lack of joy that you've been too long consumed with what's in it for you and you've forgotten that Christ has called you to something greater to serve others like he did, like he does. I've done drywall a few times, enough times to know that if I ever need to do drywall again, I'm going to hire somebody else to do it because it just takes me forever. Right? Drywall is just one of those things. You're putting up mud, you have to sand. You put up mud and you sand. You put up mud and you sand. And it might take a professional two or three times to do it. It takes me five, six, ten. Also, I'm a perfectionist. And if it's not completely smooth like glass, then I feel like I didn't do my job. That's apparently not what drywall is for, but that's, that's me. But I'll tell you what doing drywall has taught me. Patience is required. And if you're going to get it looking and shaped just right to fill in the gaps and to ease the transitions and to go around the corners just right, you can't rush it. Things have to dry. You have to sand it. You have to wipe it down. It just, it takes time. Paul here in prison is not at the start of his Christian life. And so if you are hearing in this, shame and guilt heaped upon you because you don't measure up. Listen again. Where do you need Christ to shape you? 
That's what he's doing in his people. That's what it means for him to be your all in all, is that he is teaching you more and more what it means to respond rightly to your circumstances. He's teaching you more and more and giving you the very desires of your heart that would honor him. He is showing you more and more the glorious purposes that he has called you to. And he is shaping you more and more and more so that if not now, soon, the day will come when you too can say, not in wishful thinking, but with earnest expectation and hope, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May that be true of all of us soon. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to be at work in us, to show us, O oh Lord, what you are doing, that our confidence would be in you, that our glory would be in you, that our purpose would be in you, that you would be our all in all, that you would shape every part of us in conformity to your likeness and image, that we might find joy and progress in our faith. Work this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.